0: Last few weeks, we've been launched into a new decade, keeping in mind the massive opportunity that we have in the 2020s to be a part of the kingdom of God expanding on planet Earth in ways we have never seen before. And we are freaking out excited about what God could do over the course of the next decade, not just in our church or in this country, but around the world. And we're even more excited because we actually get to play. A part in that as the message of Jesus goes out. So it's not just hype that we're saying the 2020s are going to be special. I believe the Spirit of God is speaking not just to me, not just to our church, but to the big C church right now and communicating that massive revival is possible if the people of God are praying and connected to Jesus. I believe that this is something we could play such a huge part in. But I believe that our ability to either step into that calling or completely miss it depends on our ability to stay connected to grace and truth. So if you ask me, Miles, what's your one word for ACC in 2020? It's my one word for us, and I believe God's one word expressed as two words over the course of the next decade. We have to stay uncompromisingly connected to grace and truth at the same time. And the great thing is we don't have to figure out how to do that. We just have to stay connected to Jesus, who is full of grace and truth. For too long, I think the church has been forced to make a choice between being loving and forgiving and being truthful and biblical. But in reality, in the person of Jesus, they're all the same thing. So we felt like, okay, we need to be gracious and we need to just make sure people are welcomed and know that they're forgiven and know that their story is not over and know that God can still use them. And there's, there's sort of an extreme side to that that feels like we even need to compromise on some of the core truths of the scriptures in order to be loving and reach people. Here's the thing is that if you compromise on truth, you're never really loving to someone. And so we've got to stay 100% committed to grace and making sure everyone knows they have a place in the family of God. But simultaneously, we've got to stay 100% committed to the scriptures, that God's call to obedience in our life is not a call to slavery. It's actually a call to freedom. And that when you live your life within the confines of the boundaries God has set for your life, you actually experience the life you were created to live and the life that Jesus died for. So we've just said as a church, we're not going to compromise either way. We're not going to be 50% grace and 50% truth because Jesus is 100% grace and truth. And the way that you and I can communicate to a lost, dark, and broken world that both are possible is by staying inwardly connected to Jesus himself. And so that's where we're headed. That's where we've been. And last week we tackled the one subject matter that I believe our culture is pointing at the church and telling us to choose more than any other. We talked about human sexuality last week. And to be honest with you, I was dreading last Sunday for a long time. Because I knew what God had called me to say, and I knew that he had laid it on my heart. And I so I came into last Sunday so nervous and so prayer-filled that I was ready for like an onslaught of prayer. Criticism and feedback to come and questions that needed to be answered that 's why we did an hour long question and answer session after the seven p m last week, which went incredibly well. We were here till ten o 'clock last Sunday night, making sure that every person got the opportunity to ask whatever question about sexuality and what God says about marriage, and it was it was powerful to hear how closely tied people are relationally to people who they want answers for, and they want to know how to relate to them. But I'll tell you what I was not expecting. I woke up Monday morning exhausted from the day before. I was not expecting the level of encouragement and overwhelming gratitude that has been overflowing to me and our staff and our church this week. It was like, no negative feedback. This is shocking that Something that I thought would cause such a stir was really met with a group of people going, thank you, somebody given some kind of direction on how to handle this topic that feels like it's got to divide us. There has literally been one or two negative instances. The real reality is that you have responded with overflowing gratitude and encouragement, and I honestly didn't even know what to do with it. So I've had an awesome week. Thank y'all for responding the way that you did because I was, I was literally, I was so nervous going into it. And I was like, okay, here we go. It's going out. Once it's out, it is what it is. And, and people are going to have to respond. Oh, my gosh. People are grateful. This is amazing. So then I, 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 I felt relief. I felt like, oh, my gosh. Like, we should be charging after these things. You know, Proverbs 28.1 says that the wicked flee, though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. You know, sometimes you're running from the very thing that not only should you not be afraid of, but God has put you in a position to take it on and step through. Lions are actually not that bold, they just know who they are. And so, if you're aware of what God has put on the inside of you, sometimes what you're afraid of is not even really coming after you, it's a lie. And then I'm getting to the middle of this week and I'm like, oh, man, we should have just done one hard topic because now, you know, we've got next Sunday we're going into anxiety and depression and suicide. And this Sunday we're talking about politics and racism. So if you want to know what conversation you showed up for today, we are in the middle of the ultimate preaching gauntlet and we're almost halfway through and I can't wait for January to be over. But the reason why I'm doing this is not to talk about the most controversial things over and over again. The reason why we're doing this is because we truly believe that the 2020s have massive potential for the church to take ground that's never been taken before. The problem is the church is in a state of paralysis because we don't really know how we collide with culture on issues where the culture is looking at us going, "What, what do you say and what do you do? And we're going, oh, well, we don't talk about that. We don't address that. You stay away from sexuality. You stay away from politics. And I believe we need to meet it head on and go the church is the hope of the world this is who Jesus is this is what Jesus says and when you do that God's going to honor it so we're doing it today and uh, I hope God uses it in a powerful way the nine went the nine went really, really well. Um, I'm hoping the 11 brings a similar level of energy. But we had a lot of key amening former charismatics at the nine. And so I really need some of you who woke up late. You're like, dude, you're not getting it out of me. Just give me a little amen from your Southern Baptist background and, and, and we'll be okay. So here's what I need to say, first of all. First of all, I realize that politics and racism are not the same thing. And I realize that what can be said in a sermon about each of them does not even scratch the surface of the division that exists in our country right now. I'm not trying to go really deep on either one of these topics. Each one of these words needs an entire sermon series to even start to do that. What we're doing is trying to provide a baseline foundation so that if you are a Christian, you know how you are supposed to engage this issue this year. So in the early church, the people of God are gathered around the Word of God, and God is adding to their number daily those who are being saved. When we come together on Sundays, I believe the purpose of this moment is for the Word of God to remind us who we are in Christ and what we are called to. And the great thing about that is, as Christians are reminded of their true identity, more and more people around them want to be Christians because they see what they have that they really want. And so if you're here and you don't believe in Jesus, you're so welcome to be here, you don't have to believe to belong. You already belong just by walking through the door. But it's great for you to get to sit in on a conversation like this and go, okay, how does a Christian worldview collide with the current political and racial tension that exists in our country right now? I think it's easy to see that we do have a divide here. And our recent division, this is why we're doing these together. Our recent division has shown a correlation between these two things, particularly in the Christian church. Politics and racism are their own issues in and of itself, but what's happened over the course of the past 10 years is the political divide and the racial divide has almost looked identical in regards to Christian churches numerically. And so now we have people who claim to be brothers and sisters in Christ, feeling like not only are they not in the same family of God, but that they're not even in a common human race and can't even be loving to one another. And the world looks at that division and finds what we're selling about Jesus absolutely unbelievable and not valuable. That's why Jesus' last prayer was for unity because he knew it would be the unity of people who don't look like each other, who don't agree with each other, that would shine to a lost, dark, and broken world that's taken more captive by fear and hate day by day. And so we're becoming more and more divided. But I want to say from the beginning, some of the people who say this is the most divided our country has ever been, 2020 is doomsday. Oh, my gosh. Listen, we had a civil war. That was a little more divisive. We literally got on two sides and fought. We had the civil rights movement where the reason why our division feels like it's the most powerful is because it's the most visible it's ever been. Now we have access to technology that puts it in the palm of our hands. And so if you had social media during the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s, you would have said, this is the most divided our country has ever been. The only thing that makes it feel more pressing to you and to me right now is that the hate is right in front of our faces all the time. And anybody can share what they think about anything and everything. And you, it seems like you have to listen. And so the division is visible, and I think we've got a group of people who are wondering what in the world we are supposed to do in response. Now, before I jump into the Word of God and where we're going to be going today, I wanted to give you the one thing I would say about this division that I think needs to go out into the Big C church over and above anything else. So if you're one of those short attention spans and I'm going to lose you in about 10 minutes, I put this at the beginning of the sermon so that you would know what is the one thing that we're supposed to do as Christians in response. To what's happening in our country right now. If you ask me, said Miles, in five seconds, answer the question, what is the church called to in 2020 with the political divide being what it is and the racial divide being what it is? My answer would be this sentence Pray for change more than you criticize or complain. Pray for change more than you criticize or complain. Why is prayer always seen as like this side thing that we do sometimes? Not noticing that we're talking to the God of the universe and we're literally standing in the gap for our country and our leaders. Prayer is not some sort of thing that we look at on the side and go, okay, that, that, that could help, but then we got to engage this issue and this issue. No, prayer literally is the battle. And if you and I spent as much time praying for the division that's happened instead of spending that time sharing our opinion or literally sharing articles, I truly believe five minutes spent in prayer is better than 50 hours spent sharing news stories in your opinion. Going before the God of the universe and going, God, would you move in our nation like never before? Would you unite what seems like it cannot possibly be united? I think prayer is absolutely our most powerful weapon. And one of the most unfortunate things about the division that exists right now is that social media and news is not going anywhere. But social media and news are not the problem, guys. We're the problem. All what's visible reveals is what was already true about us. It just puts it in front of our face. So until we change inwardly, none of that is going to change, and none of that is really the problem. It begins with prayer, and then I'll take it a step deeper. It begins with you. So I want to bring you into the world of what it is like to be a preacher and prepare for sermons like this. Every week when I'm getting ready for this moment, first of all, I love when people tell me, hey, what's it like to only work on Sundays? And I'm like, ah, funny guy. You know what I want to respond, knowing what I know about my schedule? Hey, what's it like to have a weekend? Um, that's, how, that's how me in the flesh wants to respond. But I just say, oh, that's really funny. I've never heard that before. Um, I get that question. During the week when I'm preparing a sermon, this will help some of y'all who want to go into ministry and want to go into preaching and speaking and things like that. There's one thing that I'm looking for as the chief above anything else. And if I can get that one thing, the sermon just kind of flows from there. I'm searching the word of God for what he wants to say to our people. But the main thing I'm looking for is what is called tension. And when you see my iPad up here every week, every week I have italicized and in bold the word tension because it reminds me that the way you communicate with people for a change is to create common ground on a common problem that people want to look to the Word of God to figure out how they're supposed to navigate it. So what I'm trying to do when I communicate is I'm trying to get you to feel a tension that I felt, and if we're all feeling this common tension and going, yeah, this is a problem, and yeah, we need to do something about this, and we look to the Word of God and see how the Word of God addresses that tension, then boom, we've got a powerful united moment where we're like, yes, we needed that, and yes, we need to act on that. But it's so easy with things like anxiety, sexual sin, relational reconciliation in families, and and, and and things like that that I've preached on before. When I start talking about those things, I know that's what you're going through. And so I start talking about what it means to be anxious and my own personal struggles in it, and then looking to the word of God. And everybody in the room is like, yes, yes, yes. Talk to me about this because I need help with this. I need to engage with this. What's so interesting is as I was preparing to talk about Politics and racism, I realize that this is the most unique subject matter to talk about because everyone in the room would agree that it's a major problem, but not one person in this room thinks that they are a part of that problem. So it's different because the problem is not seen as something that's internal. It's seen as something that somebody else needs to fix. And just the very nature, that's okay. I don't want you to feel super convicted by that. It's your own political opinion. It's your own relationships. But it's human nature to assume about these issues. Yes, we have a big problem. Yes, we have a major division. But somebody else, if they change the way they think about it and they act on it, then it's going to get fixed because my opinion can't be wrong and the way I go about race relations can't be wrong because we jump to things like defenses. Everybody in this room, when I brought up races or racism, Everybody in this room who is white instantly defended themselves by thinking about whether or not they have a friend who is a minority in a second. You didn't even realize you did it. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm good on the racism thing. I got a black friend. Dead serious. That's what we did. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm good. I knew that guy. And then, yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a part of the problem. I'm not a, problem, a part of the problem politically. Like, I just, uh, it's, it's, it's CNN. It's Fox News. It's, it's them. It's them. It's them. And even if you're here... And you are a part of a minority. First of all, I want this sermon to ring so true in your heart that you feel like you've been seen and you've been heard like never before. But a lot of what we say from this stage in this moment can be uncomfortable for you because you're like, yeah, there's no way I could be a part of the problem. I'm literally the group of people that gets oppressed. I'm literally the group of people that gets isolated. What you didn't realize that you did in that moment was exclude yourself from being a part of the solution as well. So if no one is willing to look inward and everybody agrees that there's a problem, but it's out there somewhere, when is it ever going to change? What we need in the church is for people to be bold enough to look inside their own heart and their own family history and their own tendencies and their own fears and go, wait a minute, maybe God wants to do something in me today. I'll tell you this, you, we will not change the world around us if the word within us doesn't transform us in this place. And there's some things that I think you and I have been willing to close God off to, to where I want to clarify, we're going to open the word of God in just one second. We are not talking about what God is going to do out there. We are the church of Jesus himself. And he's got to transform us from the inside out. And the local church is the hope of the world. If you and I are disarmed and set free from the fear and the bitterness and the hatred and our tendencies to go down certain roads, oh my goodness, I cannot imagine what God can do in and through this group of people in 2020. So will you be bold enough to look in the mirror, not at everybody else? If you're in, hold your Bible up. Come on, all over this place. Hold it up, hold it up. Some of you are like, I'm in, but I don't have a Bible. Raise your hand or something. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Been a lot of uh, discussion this week on whether or not the Bible drill works. The Bible drill for single people works to the degree that you work it out. I can only do so much, okay? I have people lifting up their Bibles every week, and we, and we have the single people look around and consider what moves they're going to make. But listen, the Bible drill in and of itself isn't going to solve anything, same as a sermon isn't going to solve anything if you don't do something about it on Monday and Tuesday. I say all that to say, don't get bitter toward the Bible drill and me if you're still single. Engage. Pray, pray for change more than you criticize or complain. Okay, all right. <laughs> Ephesians. <laughs> so good. <laughs> I hear you. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 11. Okay. Okay. From now on, whenever you hear the word Ephesians or you hear about the book of Ephesians, I want you to instantly think of the word unity. That needs to be the first word that comes to your mind unity. The New Testament compiles many letters written by the Apostle Paul to churches throughout the Greco-Roman world that he started. Usually he's writing these letters to address a particular problem that's happening in that individual church. The problem that exists in the Ephesian church is that they have become divided, two groups, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Some of you didn't know this, but in the first century when the message of Jesus was going out to the whole world, there was a ton of confusion about what was Jewish about Christianity and what was not. And so things are being debated, like what laws need to be followed. Things are being debated, like are the Jewish people more valuable than Gentiles? And the Gentiles just kind of got into the family of God late. Like, how does that all work? Well, here's what's happening in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus is thinking about splitting into two different groups because they are literally about to go at it in sharp disagreement. And you can kind of presume what's happening. You can see the Jewish Christians being like, listen, Gentiles, this is still our thing. He's he's been our god since Abraham. Like we we've got the blood of the covenant inside of us. Like we are the true Israel, the true people of God. You got grafted in late and that's great, but we're going to show you cuz we're better than you and you can hear the elitism that would probably be in their voices. At the same time, you can probably imagine the bitterness and disrespect that rose up in the Gentile Christians. Because they're like, yeah, you guys are so great. You were so disobedient that you crucified your own Savior and let us in the back door. We're in the family of God. That's what I would have said. We're in the family of God now. This is amazing. But you can hear and kind of sense that they would have probably been a little bit disrespectful to the Jews. Like, listen, you guys missed it. And now we're in. And so the division has become so sharp that Paul has to write a letter. And in the book of Ephesians... Paul spends the first three chapters of Ephesians in one prayer. That's a long prayer. Ephesians begins with Paul praying, and he doesn't stop until he gets to his immeasurably more section at the end of Ephesians chapter three. Why do I tell you that? Because when Paul sat down and was seeking to reconcile two groups that had become so divided, his method was prayer. We need to pray. How do you reconcile Jew-Gentile tensions the same way you reconcile every tension? On your knees before God, asking him to do something that has never been done. And so for three chapters, Paul goes on and on with a prayer that he's lifting up, and he's using this prayer to try to bring the two groups together. And he has this moment in chapter 2 in verse 11 where he specifically addresses Gentile Christians. That's us, most of us. If you're here and you're a Jewish Christian, you're so welcome to be here. Most of us are not blood-related to the people of God, Israel. And here's what he says in his prayer, Ephesians 2.11. If you're there, say, I'm there. Here it is. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. As Paul prays, he specifically addresses the Gentiles and he says, you need to remember that when you weren't even a part of the family of God, when you were far, far, far away, God brought you near by the blood of Jesus. What is Paul doing? Paul is trying to get the Gentiles into a state called humility because relational healing always requires humility. What's happening in our country right now is not a battle between Republican-Democrat It's not a battle between right and wrong. It's not a battle between black and white. What's happening in our country right now is a battle between humility and pride. And where there is no humility, there is absolutely no healing. And I wanted to share this with you. Relational unity always begins with gospel humility. Relational unity always begins with gospel humility, meaning You and I cannot have hope to be unified with people that we disagree with or that we don't look like until we're in a position where we remember the true nature of the gospel is that we were brought near to Jesus and we never, ever, ever deserved it. What humbles you relationally to be able to forgive, to be able to understand somebody else is when you're in a position where you go, I didn't deserve to be in a relationship with God at all, yet I've been brought near And Paul's going, you got to remember what God saved you from. you got to remember what you've been rescued from. And once you're in that position where you're not holding on so tightly to your opinions and the way you see the world, but you start to release and become a little more open, it is in that posture of humility that God can do a work called unity. But only then. And so Paul gets him to that place, and then he says this. Look at verse 14. For he, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made the two groups one, He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. This is amazing. This is the most game-changing set of verses in the entire Bible that needs to go out to our country in 2020. Paul says, Jesus is our peace, who has made the two groups one By destroying the dividing wall of hostility. Now, when you read that, you will not see in English what is actually there in Greek. What is there is Paul using language that describes the tabernacle from the Old Testament. Everybody look up here. You cannot miss this. This is one of the coolest things about the gospel that gets ignored so often, and I want to get it across to you. The Old Testament people of God had a specific way that they made atonement for their sins. They would go into this space called the tabernacle. Think like an outer gate and then an inner set of tents, similar to our church uh, just a couple of years ago, Shay, in the parking lot. And I remember the tent days, and I think it was awesome, except for when that hurricane came through and those fake chandeliers almost fell on me. Um, we, we got memories from being church without walls. But what happened in the tabernacle is... Only Jews were allowed inside the actual outer wall. And then the more you got toward the middle, the more you were excluded. Only certain tribes could go in certain areas. And then only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for sins and offer a sacrifice. So when you read about Jesus dying on the cross, most of us know these verses. It says that the veil was torn when Jesus died. What does that mean? That means no longer do the people of God have to wait for a priest to offer sacrifices for their sins. Jesus is our high priest. And the holy of holies, the most holy place, can be accessed by us on our knees in confidence because of the blood of Christ. That's amazing. Except, this is what's crazy, so many of us have sung songs. The veil was torn. Here's the problem. That doesn't matter if you're not Jewish. If you're not Jewish, you're not even allowed to go in the tabernacle at all. So who cares if the veil was torn? The veil was torn for them. You're still left out. Paul says, look at this. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. And Jesus didn't just die to destroy the veil that kept the Jews from encountering God. He died to destroy the wall that separated us from them and it was the same action. His purpose, Jesus' purpose in dying on the cross was to make two groups, one, my whole life, I've heard about loving people, and I've heard about unity among Christians, and it's always a supplemental message in light of what Jesus did on the cross. It's like, if Jesus died for you, you should love your neighbor. If Jesus died for you, you should stop being so hateful. If Jesus died for you, and it's like this this total focus on what Jesus did, and then the byproduct should change some of our behaviors. What I want you to see is that when Jesus died for you, he was also dying for this, one and the same. His purpose was to destroy the dividing wall, meaning when the veil was torn, what we didn't realize until the Holy Spirit went out is that the wall was also torn down, which means no longer do you have to be a certain race, come from a certain bloodline, or be anything other than a human being to participate in the family of God. The body of Christ is united by the blood of Jesus And now every single one of us has the opportunity to come near. Jesus came to destroy two walls. The wall between us and God and the wall between us and us. And the action was the same. You do not separate relational unity from knowing the gospel and being brought close into a relationship with God. They are one and the same. Now here's what I know. I know everybody in the room, if you're a Christian, you agree with what I'm saying. Like, wow, that's cool about the tabernacle. I never knew that. And that's amazing that what God was doing was restoring us as one humanity into a right relationship with himself. Just as much as God is your heavenly father, other Christians are your brothers and sisters. This is a family. And it's awesome. But I think everybody agrees to that. Remember my original tension that we're dealing with. We're dealing with a group of people who agrees that there's a problem but doesn't think that they're a part of the problem. And so it's like, yeah, we need to be united. But what does that look like for me? And what does that look like for the church in 2020 coming up on an election year that promises, promises to take us under in division like no other time and only increase the racial tension that has existed for so long. Here's what you and I have to do. We have to confront the true enemy that exists on the inside of us. And that enemy is not simply our tendency to post or be bitter or be hateful or disagree or be spiteful. That enemy is the core motivator behind all division, and it has to be eradicated from your heart right here and right now. That enemy, one word, is fear. Fear. All division finds its root in fear. And what you're about to watch in 2020 is you're about to watch a competition over who can scare the american people the most you know they this is the goal of washington dc come election time it's how do i scare the most amount of americans for what their country and the world will look like under the other person's leadership and if i scare them enough this is the news summarized guys if i scare them enough then i'll get their vote and so what we have is Fear tactics from two different sides trying to go, okay, well, this is what the country's gonna look like. If he or she leads it, this is where we're gonna be five years, ten years from now. And if you get people fearful enough, you'll get their vote. I can pretty much promise you that is exactly what is going to happen over the course of the next ten years. And I would also say that that same root is the same thing that's at the root of all racism. At the core of racism is not hate, it's fear. You gotta go deeper. Some of you have fears that have taken root in your heart that you have never addressed or been aware of because they've been around for so many generations in your family, unchecked, that you thought the civil rights movement and people being unified took care of that for you, but they haven't because you're still scared of what you don't understand. And you're scared of what you've never engaged with, particularly who you've never engaged with. And so what you need to do in 2020 is not address all of the many different policies that you're passionate about and things that you need to figure out. No, you need to address what is it about you that walks into that room and sees that group of people and feels, I'm scared. What is it about you that feels like our country has to be governed in a particular way that captivates your heart with fear and makes you feel like, if this doesn't turn out the way I want it to turn out, what are we going to do? And I would even ask you, if you're here and you have been the group of people that have been oppressed, you've had hate happen, you've seen it, your fear is legitimate, of course you're afraid. Your fear is not like perspective toward the future, it's retrospective to what happened. So you're going, of course I'm afraid. Here's the thing, when the fear of wounds from the past impacts your present, what you have chosen is a pathway called bitterness that is only going to lead to more hate. And you assume that there's no way you could be a part of the problem in our country. But here's the problem when you take the offense that was put against you and you leave your fence up and become offended, you now contribute toward the division that exists in our country. And so both sides are building a firestorm together of division that's not being addressed because we think the problem is hate. We think the problem is disagreements. We think we just need to calm down and be nice. That's not the problem. The problem is we're afraid. And watch this. What DC is unaware of and what most people who don't know Jesus are unaware of is that there is only one Christian motivator that is stronger than fear. DC would say, fear, strongest motivator. Act on that. Christians say, no, no, no. We got this thing that drives out fear. It's called perfect love. And only Christians have it. And believe me, we've got to turn there. I'm just going to read it. First John chapter 4 says this. And we know and rely on the love God has for us. So some of us think we know how to solve the problem in our country. Just love people, love wins. Come on, guys, just be loving. No, 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 you're not gonna get that because at the core of human heart is fear that can only be disarmed by perfect love that comes from God. We know and rely on the love God has for us, not the love that we conjure up for our neighbor because the love that comes from God is first of all pure and the Greek word is agape. If it comes from him, it can get through us and can do things that we could never do on our own why because God doesn't have love he is love God is love whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment in this world we are like Jesus there is no fear in love but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment the one who fears is not made perfect in love we love because he first loved us here it is ACC The only reason why we're going to be different than the rest of the world is not because we have this special gift that nobody else has. It's because we've been loved by God and we know it. And if we know it, it gets through to us in a way that no other love can shine. If you know that you've been loved by God, you now have the humility to sit across from somebody who has wronged you and forgive them. If you know you've been loved by God, you can vehemently disagree politically on some very important things and still love them like a brother and sister in Christ because you know that this world is bigger than the United States. It's about the kingdom of God. But you don't get that without perfect love. That's why all of our efforts to try to change things are falling on deaf ears because we're going, if we could just get along, if we could just be nice, if we could just play nice, it's not going to happen because the problem is not hate. The problem is fear. And fear can only truly be eradicated when you've got perfect love. And perfect love has to come from your heavenly father. And that's why tomorrow we celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s life. We're celebrating a man who stood against the grain in his day when his contemporaries were saying, hey, we're being wronged, we're being oppressed, we need to fight back. MLK came forward and said, no, there's a better way. Instead of returning their hate with hate, that'll only perpetuate the problem. Let's just, because he knew Jesus, let's tap into the love we have in God and love those who persecute us. I want to read a line that MLK wrote in light of the season that we're in, and I want you to read it humbly. We need this in Auburn, Alabama right now. Fear is mastered through love. Hate is rooted in fear. And the only cure for fear, hate, is love. Is not fear one of the major causes of war? We say that war is a consequence of hate, but close scrutiny reveals this sequence. First fear, then hate, then war, and finally deep hatred. We're afraid of the superiority of other people, of failure, and of the scorn of disapproval of those whose opinions we value most. Envy, jealousy, a lack of self-confidence, a feeling of insecurity, and a haunting sense of inferiority are all rooted in fear. Is there a cure for these annoying fears that pervert our personal lives? Yes a deep and abiding commitment to the way of love. Perfect love casteth out fear. Hatred and bitterness can never cure the disease of fear. Only love can do that. And the reason, yeah, we can clap for that. It's good. It's so good. The reason why this man stood out in an era of so much darkness was because he was connected to the source of grace and truth, Jesus himself. And so I know even when we have these conversations, it's like, that's great, Miles, but what difference can one life make? What difference can one life make? Do you know why you don't have school tomorrow? Because one man stood up and said, the response to all of this hate isn't going to be for us to grab our weapons and fight back. Our response, because we know Jesus, is to wrap our arms around those who'd rather have us dead. And in wrapping his arms around people, somebody killed him. But they did not kill a man who was scared. They killed a man who was as bold as a lion. And so that boldness comes from knowing how loved you are. And if that can disarm the fear of a man who legitimately had a million reasons to be afraid, it can do that in your heart as well. Well, What's God going to call me to do? I don't know what he's going to call you to do. I just know it's going to be uncomfortable. For perfect love to get rid of and cast out fear, it has to go to the wound. And when you treat a wound, you go, ow, that hurts because healing hurts. And so God's not going to address this issue in your heart through a new stance on politics. God's going to address this issue in your heart by saying, hey, go talk to him. Hey, go talk to this person and seek to understand instead of to be understood. Hey, don't respond to that. And it's all these different things that collectively seem impossible. But when the church of Jesus Christ is on the same page, even if we disagree all over the map, when we're on the same page about love and unity, fear is no longer the chief motivator love is. And I want to be those people. So i got two points for you before you go. And honestly, like normally when I get to the end of a sermon, I'm like, this is exactly what I want you to do with this sermon. I don't really feel that way this Sunday. I feel like God could be revealing that to you individually, personally, In a way that I cannot speak over a group this size with this many different backgrounds, races, and seasons of life. By the way, let's just say this because of what Jesus did. Even when we talk about racism, I feel like this needs to be said. Because of the blood of Jesus, there's one bloodline, which means there's one race, the human race. And so even when we talk about being from from different backgrounds, seeing it through the lens of one humanity, one life... um, I think it's huge. So I'm going to give you these two things in humility. I'm going to trust God to use them. Some of them are going to make you super uncomfortable. But these are not the only two things you need to do. Somebody say grace. Somebody say truth. All right, let's do both. Number one, here's what we need to do. Give America your vote and give Jesus your hope. And distinguish the two. Give America your vote and give Jesus your hope. When I say this, I'm not saying make sure you vote in November. I do think you should, I think you should participate, but when I say give America your vote, I mean give the country that you call home your citizenship, but don't give it your soul. And citizenship is, is huge. It's amazing to watch what leaders are a part of and to pray toward that end and believe for a better day. I think this movement, in response to the division that's happened in our country, this movement of anti-America becoming a popular thing is not okay. We should literally be the most grateful people on planet Earth for the country that we stand on every time our feet hit the ground. And the blood that has been shed for us to live in this country deserves that kind of respect and gratitude, and that's the kind of church this is going to be. I love the United States of America. I'm very, very proud that my family calls America home, and I think that that needs to be a common thing. It's great. So engage. Vote. Figure out where you stand on issues. Contribute. Some of you will be called to public service, and that's awesome. But in the process of participating in your citizenship, remember what Jesus said. Everybody look up here. Jesus only addressed politics one time in his entire ministry. And he said, about taxes. One thing Jesus has to say is about taxes. I hope that just hits somewhere. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. In one line, the most brilliant (laughs) summary of how to participate in your local country. And if you're not a citizen of the U.S., obviously you can fill in your country there. But give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. What, what belongs to Caesar? And Jesus was in an oppressive situation that you are not in in the U.S., regardless of what you've gone through. Okay, He was nailed on a, on a cross, publicly naked, bleeding out. If you're in America right now, you're in a better situation than Jesus was in 2,000 years ago. So the fact that he would even encourage submission and obedience toward a government shows humility in the first place. But he says, you give your citizenship, but do not give your soul. Now, here's where I draw a line on some of the I'm proud to be an American speech that I just made. <laughs> you need that. <to, laughs> that was fun. And I really am. My great-grandfather immigrated here, poor family from Italy, and immigrated here. And I'm so grateful for the life we've been able to build. But my hope is not in this country. And that disarms the election or anything that could happen politically from having a huge effect on my life. Because I'm a Christian. What I mean by that is, okay, America gets my vote, it gets my citizenship, but Jesus and Jesus alone has my hope so that as much as I don't want it to, if things go a certain direction in our country, I'm going to be okay, and so is my family. I want a million things for this country morally, financially, globally, economically, on every level. I got my own opinions about stuff, but here's the reality. If the United States of America goes down in every single area to the degree that this country 100 years from now is unrecognizable from what we know it to be right now, and we're ashamed of what it becomes 100 years from now, guess what? We're believers in Jesus. That still doesn't steal our hope. You're afraid of something you don't need to be afraid of. You don't need to spend whatever side you rest on politically. You don't need to spend from now until November freaking out about anything. Because you belong to another land, to another place called heaven, and you're a citizen of a place that will endure forever. So United States, along with every other country on this planet, will be gone, and we will live forever as citizens of the one King of kings and Lord of lords. His name is Jesus. So... What can persecution or difficulty or hardship from your government even do to you as a Christian here? I would argue it can only increase the level of influence the church has. Some of us are like, do you know some of the things that are being talked about? Like how much Christians are about to be persecuted and oppressed and what, well, how things could turn? I'm like, oh yeah, like when the church started in Acts? Guys, I hope it doesn't happen. I love religious freedom, but you do realize the church thrives when it's persecuted. You know any anybody in China, India right now? They seem like their joy's being taken by the fact that their government finds it illegal for them to participate in being a Christian. Actually the church is exploding over there. Some of us we, we come here every week and we pray against lukewarm cultural Christianity. What if God answers that prayer through persecution? Like, what if it's no longer culturally acceptable to go to church? Like, we have to sneak it in. Wouldn't that be awesome? Because then all the fake people would be like, yeah, I'm out. Like, <laughs> I was in when it was acceptable. But, they, I mean, they'd be gone, and it would be, like, just people who are dead serious about Jesus being their everything. So the thing you're, you're actually afraid of needs to be disarmed. Perfect love drives out fear. If you know who you are in the family of God, participate. Cast your vote pray more than you criticize and complain, but at the end of the day, sleep really, really well because you're not in a president's hands. You're in Jesus' hands. It's going to be all right. That's number one. Number two, give issues your mind and give people your heart. Give issues your mind and give people your heart. I think it's good that we land differently on certain political issues and policies. I think it's good to consider biblically um, what your stance is on certain things but here's what i want you to keep in mind about jesus jesus's mission was to revolutionize the whole world and he never once took a political stance or conjured up some sort of military army to make a move how do you change the whole world as a jewish slave with no money this is jesus's answer build unlikely relational bridges So you can have your mind made up about an issue, but when your mind starts to cloud your heart from being engaged with other people, you've missed on how God wants to change the world. Jesus walked around befriending and loving on people who the culture at the time would have said, you two do not go together. And Jesus' method, I think, speaks to us as a church today. The way God wants to move in your life in 2020 is by putting you in a relational situation with somebody that you don't understand, that you don't really look like, that you don't really vibe with or jive with, but you are in the kingdom of God. And what's going to happen is you're going to notice the heart of God on that connection that is far going to exceed the power of your political stance about an issue. So yeah, read the Bible, make up your mind, but we've got to simultaneously be grace and truth. And some of these issues absolutely require us to do that. I'm going to talk about just a couple of them real quick. Number one being abortion. Y'all, as a church, you need to know, and we've reminded our church many different times, we will always hold to the word of God against murder and for the rights of the unborn. We will oppose any system or any sort of law made in the direction of eliminating a human life because God made that life. At the same time, we can't let our mind about that issue miss God's heart for the person who's carrying that shame and that burden into our very church. This is where the church has missed it. So we gotta be equally as open and welcoming to the man or woman that's been touched by that, specifically the women that have gone through with that step and they're sitting here today and feeling like, I don't have a place in the family of God. Yes, you do fully grace God can restore and tell a new story through you in a way that you can't imagine I just feel I've done this once before and it was so powerful what God did I feel like there is a woman in here who you took that step and and God just wants you to know that he's got your baby right now (laughs) you see that we believe something about a doctrine but our heart beats for people we've got to be empathetic. I think about another issue that was so polarizing over the last decade that I've never addressed from stage and what happened with police brutality against black people in this country over the last decade is absolutely inexcusable. And what I watched from my predominantly white circle was a response that was more passionate about defending police officers than it was passionate about caring for those who have been hurt. Listen, our police officers are amazing, specifically those in Auburn, because I know a lot of them personally, and some of them are here listening to me right now. They're brave. We need to pray for them. We need to love on them. We need to fight for them. At the same time, what our African-American brothers and sisters were looking for us, and I'm just saying are because I'm white, okay? I'll I'll never know what it's like to be pulled over and have my heart beating out of my chest because I'm so scared as the officer walks up. But what our brothers and sisters looked at us and found so unbelievable was that we would rally to the cause of officers, but not rally to look them into the eyes and try to love on them with empathy and go, hey, I see you. And I know that you're scared and I know that you're hurt. Tell me what it's like to see the world through your eyes and seek to understand, not just be understood. And so ACC, I want to challenge us from the middle of the Bible belt in Alabama. Can we be a church that notices people who are hurting? more than we are a church who holds on unswervingly to our opinions. You know what might happen if you create an unlikely relational bridge? Here's what will happen. Your opinion might change. You might change. So I wanna challenge all of us. Make your decisions about policies. Vote for somebody, participate. But at the end of the day, don't miss out on loving your neighbor. Don't miss out on an opportunity to look at somebody in the eyes and love them right where they are today. Let's put your notes away. Let's stand up. We got one more song left to sing. My hope and my prayer in 2020 is that regardless of how this election goes, that Auburn Community Church would be a beacon of light and hope for the United States of America to look at and go, that is how country, that is how the church handles division in a country. But we can only do that if we come together. And so here's what I wanna ask. I wanna ask you to bow your head right now and pray in this moment for the division in our country politically and racially, like literally. Some of you, if you're bold enough, out loud. Don't wait for me to pray and just listen along. The best thing we can do today is pray together with one voice. Come on, would you pray for our leaders? Would you pray for people who've been hurt? Would you pray? for God to start a new day through the church and would he start right here in our hearts and lives. Heavenly Father, I know you hear the prayers of your people, and I know you hear the unrest in this room. That We want to love and serve people well, and we want to be that beacon of light and hope in a world that so desperately needs it. But God, I just pray that this room would be bold enough to look in the mirror. I pray that we would be bold enough to say, God, search my heart and see if there's any, any, any offensive way within me and lead me in the way everlasting, God creating us new hearts that beat more for people than they do to prove our point. God, in Jesus' name, I pray that our hopes would never be set on the mission of a country or a government, but that we would remember our hope is set and sealed forever on a Savior who rose up 2,000 years ago and shed his blood to bring us back from sin and death and hell. Our hope is in him. Our hope is because of him. So God, we sing to you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, church. Let's rise up with hope in this place. Come on.